0: All right. Okay, so today, let me tell you a little bit about what we're talking about. Hopefully you grabbed a handout. If you don't, that's okay, uh, because I'm going to be explaining all this. So we're continuing on a little kind of mini-series we have on how to study the Bible. The fancy $10 term is, who knows it? Hermeneutics. The Greek word hermeneuo means to interpret. And so uh, this is how to interpret the Bible. Now, just to encourage you, in some of our other studies, so when we get into the fall and some other things, we're going to be spending more time in the scriptures themselves. We're going to be talking about uh, the doctrine of God and the Trinity and how God can be sovereign, yet us still have free will, and all these kind of controversial topics. The reason that we're doing hermeneutics, though, first is we're wanting to build a foundation. If you can learn to correctly interpret the Bible, you will be able to better feed yourself for the rest of your life, all right? Because there's one Bible and like a thousand interpretations of every text in the Bible. And so what we're learning is, we're learning how to get a correct interpretation of the Bible and then be able to prove that you got a correct interpretation of the Bible. There's nothing more frustrating than sitting down with somebody and you both disagree on the meaning of a biblical text and you ask that person, you say, why do you think the text means that? And they say, well, the Spirit said that it means that. And I said, Well, the Spirit told me it means the exact opposite. So now what do we do? How do we find a correct answer? And so there is a way and there are methods that we can use to figure out what the Bible means. And so that is why we are studying. Uh, how to study the Bible, all right? So last week, we talked about the storyline of Scripture. Jeff got up here, and he basically gave this overarching narrative, this narratival arc, if you will, of the storyline of Scripture. And the reason that that's super important is because if you don't understand that the Bible's not just a collection of a bunch of random kids' stories, but rather it's one big overarching story, if you don't understand that big story, you will always misinterpret the Bible. You'll always misinterpret it. So I remember being a little kid sitting down and just deciding, you know what, I'm going to try to read my Bible. And so I just started in Genesis, and I start reading, and by the time I get into like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, I'm stressed out. I'm thinking, look at all the rules I'm breaking all the time. Because I didn't understand that I live in a different era of redemptive history than that because I hadn't been taught that overarching scheme. So last week we said the first thing you need to know to correctly interpret the Bible is the overarching storyline of Scripture, which is the kingdom of God. And then today we're going to get into everybody's favorite topic, something called presuppositions that you may have never heard about. So this is a super, super, super important thing to know when you interpret the Bible. Okay? I have a tendency to think that this is the issue of why people misinterpret the Bible. This is the issue of why people fight online. This is the issue of why people have different political opinions sometimes, even who are Christians. This is the reason. This, to me, is almost everything when it comes to interpreting the Bible. It's what's called presuppositions. They're these assumptions that we bring to the text. So let me give you a definition. Presupposition. Let me give you a definition. It's a thing assumed beforehand... At the beginning of a line of argument or course of action. I wanna read that again. A thing assumed beforehand at the beginning of a line of argument or course of action. No matter what we do in life, we come to something bringing pre assumptions, bringing what are called presuppositions. Every single one of us does it. That doesn't mean there's not objective truth. There is objective truth. It just means our subjective experience gets in the way of that when we try to go to the objective truth, okay? So let me say it this way. Let me say it stronger. You ready? You never, ever, ever, ever just read the Bible. You always just interpret the Bible. Okay? You never just read the Bible, you're always interpreting the Bible. When you come to the Bible, you come to the Bible with certain lenses, and that affects how you read the Bible. That's true for me, that's true for you, that's true for everybody. Okay? There is no just reading the Bible, there's interpreting the Bible. One of the things people will sometimes do is they'll be arguing, and someone will say, where do you get that? Why do you believe that? And they're like, because I believe the Bible. As if that's the issue, as if the other person would say they didn't believe the Bible. The issue is they're bringing their preconceived notions they're preset assumptions to the text, and that's what causes us to misread Scripture. Let me give you an example. <clears throat> let's say, and it's kind of an example that Carl used when he was teaching. Let's say I have a white piece of paper. What color is that piece of paper? Okay, is that paper, in God's mind, white? Yes, it is objectively a white piece of paper. Now let's say everyone comes into the room, and some people have on green glasses, like green-tinted glasses, Some people have on red tinted glasses. Some have rose colored glasses. Some have orange glasses. And I say, what color is this piece of paper? Everyone's gonna say, it's clearly orange. Or it's clear, no, it's clearly green. Are you colorblind? No, I think it's red. And what they're doing is though there is objective truth, though that piece of paper is objectively white, because we come in with these different lenses, we have a tendency to see that as a different color. Everybody with me so far? Okay, so my attempt today is to teach us not how we can just act like we don't have glasses on. That's what a lot of people think they do. When they just come to the scripture, they just act like they're completely objective, but rather to be able to better find what color our glasses are, if you want to say it that way. Does that make sense? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a little demonstration. Isn't that weird? I'm going to use a volunteer, all right? Like a magic trick or something. Uh, So I've already asked Malachi if I can bug him to come up here. I'm going to use him. I like to pick on the youth. I help serve in the youth. And so uh, I, I know who Malachi is. I wouldn't just pick a random person. This is a, a hand for my lovely assistant. Uh, okay. All right. Here's what we're gonna do. Okay. Grab a grab a marker, and I want you to draw a picture of what I say. It doesn't have to be super detailed. Don't draw any more, any less than I say. Just what I say. Okay. Ready? I want you to draw a picture of Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall. Go for it. We have a little music, some sort of Jeopardy music or something. He's drawing him. Yeah. Little legs. Okay, little smile. Perfect. Okay, you can can put up the marker and you can go have a seat. Give him a hand for coming up, for being bold. Here we have a very, very tiny (laughs) loaf of bread and a smiley face, all right? Okay. Now, so here's the thing. Thank you for doing this. Now, I want to mention something. What I said to him was, draw exactly what I say, no more and no less, and I said, draw Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall, okay? So here's Humpty Dumpty. And here's a wall. Now, let me ask you this question. Why did you draw Humpty Dumpty as an egg? Did I say he was an egg? I said, draw no more or no less than what I say. And you say, well, the reason I drew him as an egg is because in the the nursery rhyme, he's an egg. The nursery rhyme never says he's an egg, by the way. In the nursery rhyme, he's just a person that gets slaughtered. All right? It never says he's an egg. I didn't say he was an egg, the nursery rhyme doesn't say he's an egg, but guess what happens when I say, draw Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall, you draw him as an egg. Now, he's not the only one. Almost all of us would have done that. That's exactly what I mean by a presupposition. I didn't say there was an egg. The the, the text in the nursery rhyme doesn't say he's an egg, but we assume that and therefore when I say, draw something objective, just draw Humpty Dumpty sitting on a wall, we draw him assuming certain things about him. Now, everybody look at me, this is important. Every time we go to the Scriptures, we do something similar. We assume certain things about the text based on what pastors have told us, based on what we've read, based on what other people have said, based on our cultural presuppositions. We do that all the time, and we don't even know that we're doing it. Okay? Now let me give you another one. I want you guys to name some things. There's a lot of audience participation today, all right? Uh, I want you guys to name some things that are in the room, all right? So raise your hand when you have something. This is not a super difficult thing. Go for it, Ella. Ella. A piano. Very good. Stained glass window. Stained glass window. Good. Po- uh, yeah, yeah. Music stand, podium. Yep. People. Okay. Okay. That's, that's good. Okay. You, you get the point. Now, of the things I asked you to name, why did nobody name? So, so if I ask you what you want to name, you're naming mainly physical objects in here. You know, if you're really sharp, you might say something like, there are pages on our Bibles. If you're really sharp, you might say something like, there's light and air or something in here. But here's what's really weird. Here's some things you didn't name or probably didn't even think of as being in the room. Ready? Sitting. Sitting is in this room. Okay? Right here, I'm standing beside this little music stand. Besideness is in this room. Okay? Besideness is in this room. How many numbers are in this room? An infinite amount, an infinite amount of numbers are in this room. Does that blow your mind? God is in this room. Existence is in this room. Nobody named existence. If you have a red shirt on, redness, secondary qualities like color are in this room. Why, when I say name some things in the room that are obvious to you, do you name physical objects and not relationships like besideness? not actions like sitting, not philosophical ideas like existing, not secondary properties like color. Do you know why? Because whether you know it or not, because you are Americans, you've been influenced by a philosopher named Aristotle. And Aristotle saw the primary things as individual individual objects, individual substances. And so you might have never read Aristotle, you might have never heard the name Aristotle, but just because you're an American, when I say name things in this room, your tendency isn't to name the most real thing in this room, like God or existence. Your tendency is to name individual objects because you're thinking like Aristotle, and no one's even taught you that. That's just something we assume. So, so listen to this. If we have presuppositions when it comes to normal things like what exists, think about how many more we have when we come to the biblical text. It's all over the place, okay? Let me give you another example. <clears throat> Let's say I get hired as the CEO of Apple, all right? Something like this. Now, by the way, I'd be a terrible CEO. I don't know anything about business. I'm terrible with finances. I barely, you know, filed my taxes. And by that, I mean my wife did it for me. So I don't know anything about money or how to be an adult or any of that stuff. And so I get hired to be the CEO of Apple, and they say, Zach, show me your plans for how much money we're gonna make as a company next year. And I say, okay. And I work with all my team, and I get together, and I come before this, I don't know, board, shareholders, whatever, and I say... You know what? We're going to make the exact same amount of money we made as last year. Am I going to keep my job? No. Why? What do they expect? Yeah, they expect you to each year at least to be making a little bit more, right? In all of world history, how old do you think that idea is that you should be making more money the next year than you made the year before? It's about 250 years old. About 250 years old. That's it. Out of all of world history. For most of world history, if you're a cobbler and you make shoes, you make the same amount of shoes the next year as you made the previous year. Why? Because you survived that year and you'll survive this year on the next shoes. There's not this idea that you must be making more. The idea of the consumerism and the idea that you must be making more each year is only about 250 years old. Does that blow your mind? Right. Yeah, 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 so we're not saying that God doesn't expect more fruit and faithfulness. We're talking about this idea that you have failed if in the next year you've not made more money. So that's, yeah. <laughs> but what you see here is with us as Americans, we assume certain things even about business that most people have not assumed. In the Middle Ages, you don't have this idea that we must make more and more and more and more and more. You have this idea that I'll make as much as the land produces and hopefully my feudal Lord doesn't get mad at me for being his serf. So we bring these assumptions here. By the way, can churches do that? Can churches base whether or not they're successful on whether or not they're growing in numbers and money and these kind of things instead of whether or not they're being faithful? Absolutely, absolutely, okay? That's a modern example. Let me give you another one. Anybody ever read the passage in the New Testament where it says there'll be two people in a field? One will be taken and the other will be left. Two people laying in bed. One will be taken and the other one will be left. Now, without getting into too much eschatology, When people read that, they assume that's about a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? The idea that that text is about a presuppositional rapture is only about 150 years old in church history. That's 2,000 years old. And if you look at the context, Jesus is talking about people who are going to be judged like in the days of Noah. That's the context. The context is in the same way that the floods came and washed away the evil people, so there'll be two people in a field. One will be taken and one will be left. So in that example... You want to stay. You don't want to be taken, all right? In that example, most likely, if you look at the context, it's those who are washed away in the waters of judgment. Okay, now I'm not trying to get into eschatology and build a big defense, all that. What I'm trying to say is we just bring our assumptions to that text. We bring our assumption to that text. Or here's another one. How many times have you heard the phrase used in Christianity or from pastors that your body's a temple? Every time I hear that used... A lot of times there's some pastor who weighs like 600 pounds and he gets up and he says, you shouldn't have a cigarette because your body's a temple. And I think, your body is a temple, but you don't seem to think so, right? The text that says your body is a temple occurs in 1 Corinthians. You know what it's talking about in 1 Corinthians? It's where Christians are going to prostitutes. And what Paul says is you can't do that because you belong to Christ. Your body is a temple. So when the Bible talks about your body being a temple, it's not talking about things like physical health or whether or not you can have a tattoo or some of these other things. It's talking about sinning. Don't sin. Don't do depraved acts because your body is a temple. That's the point. So what we've done, yes, here, let me just be really clear. Take care of your body. Yes and amen, all right? Take care of your body. I'm not promoting one view or not promoting another view. I eat at McDonald's. I love Doritos. That's all fine because my body being a temple means that I walk in holiness. That's the idea is that we walk in holiness. But think how many times we just assume if somebody's doing something unhealthy, we're like, oh, well, the Bible says your body's a temple. We use that verse and we take it out of context. My body that's a temple just ran into this music stand. Uh, We take it out of context and then we misinterpret it. Is everybody with me? By the way, I am making fun of no one. I'm not meaning to get it, make anyone offended. I'm just trying to let us see how deep our presuppositions run. How deep our presuppositions run. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. What are some presuppositions you think that we might have just even as Americans in a 21st century American culture? Anybody have any ideas? You can raise your hand and shout it out if you have any. Ooh. We determine our own fate. That's one, yeah, the master of your destiny. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. I saw a guy on TV who had a, a statue in his backyard of a man carving himself out of stone, and the idea was a self-made man, right, despite the fact that God continually gives us existence through Christ all the time. What else? I heard something else. Did you say something, Edwin? Did you have one? No? No? the the preference and consumerism of America even creeps into the church. So I was listening to this lecture by this professor, and I thought it was really interesting because he had a Roman Catholic buddy, and uh, the new priest they got at their church in the Roman Catholic church was someone who supports homosexuality, which this guy disagrees with because the Bible disagrees with that. And this guy was really struggling whether or not he should leave that church because he already had this commitment to be a part of his church. And the professor just said, we don't have that struggle in evangelicalism at all for us, if a preference changes that we don't like, regardless of whether or not God's moving there or it's biblical or whatever, we just leave because that consumerism plays into our view. That's right. What else? Yeah, God relates to us only as individuals. So we forget uh, corporate natures of things. We forget the idea of Christ dying for a church. Yes, individuals as well. Individuals make up the church, but we forget this corporate idea. We forget that our sins affect other people. I think that's a corporate thing where God can sometimes shut down a church and remove its lampstand, to use the language of Revelation, if people in the church are walking in sin, that our individual sins affect other people than just ourselves That blows our mind. So there's all these assumptions. Yeah, Dan, do you have one? So one about it is just the whole, you know, I believe in God, but I don't need church. I don't need I believe in God. We've got this worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'll just have a personal relationship with Jesus, and I will uh, worship him just by walking in the woods and looking at flowers and these kind of things. And yes, you can do that, but if you want to be obedient to Jesus, he says to do things corporately, like take communion and submit to elders and don't give up meeting together and all these other things, serving one another, loving one another, all these kind of things. All right, here's another one. Um, We as Americans, so here's something that's interesting. Uh, Any baseball fans in here? There's a few. Good. Okay. So here's what was so great. When the Cubs won the World Series last year, all right? That was amazing. They came back three games down to win. They hadn't won in so many years. We as Americans typically, unless you're like someone who just really loves Cleveland, like LeBron James or something, we typically as Americans, we're super excited. You know why? Because we love an underdog. We love an underdog. I hate the New York Yankees, all right? You can't buy baseball. And so I don't like that they're just this mighty massive empire. So whoever's playing the Yankees, I cheer against. All right, cheer against the Yankees no matter who's playing them. We as Americans like the underdog. Here's the thing. If you go to Russia, it's not the same way. They're like, why would you cheer for the underdog? They always lose. Cheer for the guy that wins. That's just a cultural thing we have. We just assume that that's how everybody thinks and that's not how everybody thinks. It's not how everybody thinks. So let me give you a quote here by a a theologian over at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. His name's Richard Lentz. He says this. I wrote it on your notes. The goal of the Christian theologian is to hear with as few distortions as possible In the language of modern theology, this is achieved by making as clear a distinction as possible between the horizons of the biblical text and the experience of the interpreter. The better we understand who we are as interpreters, the better we will be able to understand the speech of God in its original context. The better we understand the speech of God in its original context, the better we will be able to understand our own distorting influences okay i want you to see a few things and i want to talk about some beginning assumptions that when we come to the text we need to think about and we need to question and we need to ask ourselves so that we can avoid some of these things okay first thing i want to say is this the number one way to misinterpret a biblical text is to assume that you already know what it means the number one way to misinterpret a biblical text is to assume that you already know what it means like in the example I gave of your body being a temple, like in the example I gave of two being in the field, one being taken, if you come to the text saying, oh yeah, I already know what this means, that is the number one way you can misinterpret it. I don't ever re-preach a sermon I've already preached unless I redo the research again, because I don't want to assume that I just got it right the first time. I will go back, look at new research, new commentaries because new biblical research is being done all the time and I will redo that whole sermon even though it takes a lot more time than just copying it and using it again because I don't want to assume that I got it right the first time. I hope that I did, but I might have gotten it wrong. There's a sense when you come to the text and you say, I think I already know what this means but I'm gonna pretend for a second that I don't know what it means. That's humility, that's humility. That realizes that God's word is way above all of us. Not that we can't understand it but that it is majestic, it is holy, it is the very word of God, okay? Second thing I wanna say is, it is impossible not to have presuppositions. So if you're hearing me say, why do we assume that Humpty Dumpty is an egg? Why do we assume that the most real things are physical objects? Why do we assume that your body is a temple means certain things? Why do we assume all these things? And if you think that the answer is, get rid of your assumptions, that's not the correct answer. This is really important. You can't get rid of your assumptions you can't get rid of all your presuppositions. Everybody, no matter how holy, how righteous, how Christian or non-Christian, you cannot come to the text as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate, and just try to see what it says. You can't. Here's what you then have to do. You have to be aware of your presuppositions. You can't get rid of them. All you can do is be aware of them. So to say it this way, with my analogy earlier, let's say I've got a white piece of paper and everybody comes in here wearing different color glasses. You're not allowed in this analogy to take off the glasses. They are super glued to your head. What then would you need to do to figure out that that piece of paper is white if you couldn't take those glasses off? You of yes, you could have a bunch of different other colors to compare it. That's very good. That's, that's something that we'll see when we look at different interpretations of Scripture. What else? What's another one you could do? Yes, ask other people. Studying the Bible in community helps us see the our, different colors of our glasses. Find somebody without glasses. Yeah, find somebody without glasses on. God, that's pretty much it. Uh, and the, yeah, so here's the thing. If, if, if you knew you had glasses on and you didn't know what color they were and you had a white piece of paper, the things you would have to do to figure out what color that piece of paper was you'd have to ask other people. You'd have to compare it with other colors. And here's would be really super helpful. Ready? If someone came to you and said, this is what color your glasses are. Because if I come up to you and I say, your glasses are lime green, and I hold up a white piece of paper and it looks lime green, you could say, okay, my glasses are lime green, so I guess that could be a white piece of paper. Does that make sense, what I'm saying, or does that sound really weird? So if you know, you can't take the glasses off, but if you know what color they are, it helps you see that piece of paper correctly. So when you come to the biblical text, you have to ask yourself, what color are my glasses? What color are my glasses? What presuppositions do I already have about this text? Number three, you can learn to reshape your presuppositions. You can learn to reshape your presuppositions, okay? Through studying God's word, through talking to other people, through using critical thinking, through studying the Bible in community, you can start to reshape your glasses. You'll always have presuppositions, but you can start to change the color a little bit. If they're really green, you can make them a little bit less green, So, you can reshape your presuppositions over time. This is the importance of studying God's Word. This is the importance of studying it in community. When you study the Bible in community, you don't get cults. And when you don't, you get cults. That's what happens. There's one guy that an angel comes to and does something crazy, and then all of a sudden, you got a cult. What that person needs is a bunch of loving Christians to come around them and say, That's a demon telling you to disobey God. That'd be super helpful. All right, so we wanna study the Bible in community. So let me give you some questions to ask yourself to challenge your presuppositions. So as we're learning to interpret scripture, last week we learned you gotta interpret it within the grand storyline of scripture. Today we're learning to question our assumptions. So let me give you some questions when you sit down to read the Bible that you can ask yourself. Ready, number one, what do I already think this text means? If you can be aware of what you already think the text means, that's a good thing, place where you can ask questions and see if it really does mean that, Okay. Number two, and I love this one. This one really shows the uh, sinfulness and brokenness of the human heart. You ready? What do I hope this text means? Or what do I want it to mean? You'll see when people come to certain texts, they really want it to mean something a lot of times. We deal with this as preachers because man, there are some texts I really want to say something well because that'll preach. It's not the meaning of the text, but it sounds really good. So there are things we want the text to say. So when you sit down with a text, you've got to ask yourself, man, what do I really wish this is saying? That's a great place to check your presupposition. By the way, presupposition is just something you suppose pre, all right? You suppose it beforehand, okay. Number three, this is big. What worldview differences does the author have that are different from mine? We'll talk about this next week. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that there is a text an author and a reader who determines the meaning of the text. We're going to talk about that next week. But one of the things you have to ask yourself when you read the Bible is, what worldview differences and culture differences are going on in this text? Not all Christianity has been 21st century Western American Christianity. We talked about that with some of these things. The fact that you're sitting in chairs or pews is only about 400 years old-ish, maybe even not that. The fact that you have services in your own language instead of in Latin, for three-fourths of church history, they've not had that. So it really helps us to question our presuppositions, not only to know what the churches believe, but what's going on in the first century. Think about the differences of Paul, two thousand years ago, living under Roman domination in the you know in the Mediterranean area, versus living in America today with democracy of a certain type and without having an emperor and with certain worldview and cultural presuppositions and these kind of things. Okay. <clears throat> Number four, I like this one a lot. Is there anything in this text that seems strange to me? When you read the Bible, if something seems super weird or super strange or like, why does it say it that way? That's a place you especially need to stop and slow down and pay attention because that is an indicator that there is a worldview difference between you and the biblical author. So when you read something weird and you're like, that's really weird and you just kind of move on, the parts that are weird are the parts you most need to pay attention to because they're a place to show you where your worldview might be off versus the biblical author. By the way, when I say your worldview, I also mean mine. Okay, I don't want this to sound like preaching at you. All of us do this, all right? All of us do this. So if I'm reading, so I'll give you an example. I was reading in the the book of Revelation, which has no S at the end of it, and uh, as I was reading Revelation, it said, the angel, the one that has authority over fire, does this. And I thought, Oh, of course, the one that has authority over fire. Uh, Of course, we just all know what that means. What on earth does that mean? They're assuming certain things about angels that I just have never assumed. So that's a place I need to stop and say, what's going on here? Or also in the book of Revelation, it's really funny. It's giving this description of the heavenly Jerusalem where God dwells with man. And it says that this angel is measuring it out. And it says that an angel's measurement is the same as a human's measurement. And I'm like, that's super helpful. You don't have to do any weird conversions if you're talking to angels about math or something. Just weird little things like that where it makes you pay attention to what's going on in the text, okay? And then lastly, this one would be really helpful. What are all the things this text could possibly mean whether I think these interpretations are likely or not? So when you sit down with an interpretation to interpret your Bible, and you you read through, let's say, a, a chapter in Ephesians, like we're about to start this morning, and uh, I don't want you just to say I think it means this. I want you to try to find all the things it could mean and then why your interpretation is the better interpretation. You You need to have reasons for why you believe your interpretation is the better interpretation. But you have to figure out all of what it could mean, which means you have to entertain things that might be possibilities that seem super weird or super wrong or whatever. That doesn't mean you're gonna land there, but you have to be open to that to begin with to make sure that you're not misinterpreting the text. Is everybody with me so far? You guys look super mad. Everybody take a big breath? I'm sure nobody is. Everybody's just tired because it's Sunday, Uh, Sunday morning. Okay, let's talk about some sources for theology, okay? Let's talk about some sources for theology. Today, we're talking about kind of presuppositions. I'm gonna erase this because this little guy just keeps looking at me, super distracting. Uh, So we're gonna talk about some sources of theology. We're talking about some general things we need to know. Okay, so number one, some presuppositions. There are certain things you do need to presuppose when you come to the Bible, Okay, again, you can't get rid of your presuppositions. You can only reshape them. There are certain things you need to presuppose when you come to the Bible. Here's the biggest one when you come to the Bible. You need to presuppose all the things we spent the last several weeks teaching you about bibliology. You need to presuppose this is God's word. This is inerrant. This is sufficient. This is clear. This is necessary. This is authoritative. You need to assume those things. Everything else in my life, when I watch it or listen to it, I watch it with a filter on. So if I'm watching the news, I just don't, passively go before the news, I try to say, what are the biases here? And I watch that. If I'm reading some book by some atheist, I say, okay, this are their presuppositions. I'm going to watch this with a filter on. Everything in my life, I, try, I want to discern and have a filter on. The one place I take the filter off is when I come to the scriptures, because I just trust it. That's the one thing that I just completely trust. Whatever it says, I'm in. It doesn't matter whether or not I think that it's right. It doesn't matter whether or not it seems right to me. Everything else, I've got my filters on that this could be false, that's what I mean by filters, even in the Bible you discern. But I have these filters saying what I'm hearing could be false. When I come to the Bible, I take that off and I say, this is true. This is my starting point. This is God's word. Okay. So <clears throat> we want to do that. Additionally, we want to uh, understand that the Bible has to be read in light of all of the Bible. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but the Bible has to be read in the light of all of the Bible. There are denominations And there are whole systems of theology that would tell you, try to pretend that you don't know anything else about the Bible when you come to interpret part of the biblical text. What they'll say is if you assume you already know certain things about the Bible, when you come to this text, you're going to misread it. We would say, we're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to just read one verse of Scripture and ignore everything else the Bible says to try to get a correct meaning of the Scripture. Why? Because I need the rest of the Bible to correctly interpret the Scripture. So we have to interpret that Scripture in light of all of the Bible. We cannot act like we don't really know what the Bible says. We're not allowed to do that if all of that is God's Word. We do presuppose and start with this assumption that the Bible is God's Word. Okay? <clears throat> One more thing on Bible, and I want to talk a little bit about church history. Just because, So when we talked about sola scriptura, Jeff talked about this in the Reformation that the Bible alone is our final source of authority. This doesn't mean there are no other helpful documents or helpful knowledge or anything else that we need to know. There are truths like this that are not in the Bible. Ready, this is a big one, ready? Two plus two is four, boom. That's equally as true as Jesus is Lord and it's not in the Bible. There are other truths outside of the Bible. When we talk about the Bible being, when we talk about believing in sola scriptura or the Bible being our final authority, what we mean is what the reformers called Uh, what is it, norma, normans, non-normata. It is the norm of norms which is not normed, meaning it is the highest standard. It is the standard that we cannot critique. Every other standard in philosophy, in logic, in culture, we can critique, but when it comes to the Bible, it stands above all of those, okay? It stands above all of those. Okay, now let's talk about history and let's talk a little bit about culture. Church history is super important for understanding the Bible. Did you know that? I think a lot of times we have a tendency to forget that studying the Bible in culture, I'm sorry, studying the Bible in community doesn't just mean I'm studying the Bible with people around me. It means I'm studying the Bible with the larger community of Christians, meaning all Christians for the past 2,000 years. There is wisdom in saying, what have all Christians who love Christ, who have had the Spirit, believe about this text? Does that make sense? There's wisdom in that, okay? So, church history is helpful for the following things when we study the Bible. Number one, church history reminds us that we are part of a larger family of faith. Church history reminds us we are part of a larger family of faith. Jesus says that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. So we need to be careful that we don't think that the church just started with us or just started at the Reformation or just started with Baptists coming out of English separatism or whatever it might be. There's always been believers that really love and trust Jesus. The gates of Hades have not overcome his church. Number two, church history helps us to hold correct doctrine and rightly interpret the Bible. If you hold a view that nobody has ever held in church history, it's most likely not right. Now, that doesn't mean it's not. It could be. Church history is not the Bible. It's not perfect. But if all Christians who've had the Spirit from all different continents and all different languages and these kind of things, no one's ever held that view, that's a red flag for something that you're holding might not be correct. Might not be correct. Okay? Next one. This one's a little controversial, but I love it. Church history helps us to guard against reading our culture onto the biblical text. Church history helps us uh, from reading our culture onto the biblical text. Let me give you some examples. Anybody in here grow up with churches that did altar calls? You go, go ahead and raise your hand. Don't be ashamed. A lot of Baptists in here. That's okay, all right? How long in 2,000 years of church history, for how many years do you think they've done altar calls? About 200. Out of 2,000 years of church history... For only about 200, they've done altar calls. You would have what was called an anxious bench, and you would come forward if you were feeling convicted or nervous, or maybe they just emotionally hyped you up, and you would sit there up front, and then someone would pray with you or whatever it would be. That's only about 200 years old. Even in the New Testament where you have a call to repentance, it's more of a baptismal call like in the book of Acts than it is a, uh, an altar call like we think of. Come forward. The buses will wait. You know, play just as I am one more time, these kind of things. Now, I'm not against those. Think about how many people God has saved through those. Praise God for that. So I'm not against it. I just want us to be aware of something that we assume should happen in a lot of churches is new, relatively speaking, when it comes to church history, okay? Out of 2,000 years of church history, how long do you think preachers have preached against alcohol? So when I grew up, I heard that alcohol's bad, it's demon juice, and these kind of things. Out of 2,000 years of church history, how long do you think pastors have been preaching against alcohol? 90, and only in America. Post-prohibition America is where we live. That's why you hear pastors do that. There are some little places in church history where they do, but on the whole, almost no Christians have ever held that drinking is sinful. They've held that getting drunk is sinful, but in church history, almost no Christians have ever held that drinking in and of itself is sinful. It happens in America. The reason we've heard that is because we're Americans and we live after the era of prohibition. You go over to England today and hang out with a pastor, they will take you to a pub and have beer and talk theology. That's what they will do, okay? John Calvin's salary was paid in wine, 1,000 liters of wine a year. That was his salary in addition to his parsonage, okay? Anybody ever heard of Welch's grape juice? That's named after a Methodist minister named Thomas Welch who lived during the era of prohibition and he thought drinking was bad, and so he made something called grape juice and made it really popular, there was some grape juice before Thomas Welsh, but the reason he's the big name is because he lived during this era of prohibition and he thought drinking was sinful and so you got Welch's grape juice. Okay, again, now let me be really clear. But look at me. This is not me making a case for or against alcohol. That's not my point. This is me making a case for challenging our presuppositions. Challenging our presuppositions. Throughout all of Christian history, how old do you think the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture and dispensationalism is? 150 years old, 150 years old. Nobody before 150 years ago basically holds to the idea of a pre-tribulational rapture where Christ actually comes back for two second comings, one invisibly for believers and then again later on, okay? What about this one? Here's something that's really debated in our culture. In our culture, there's this huge debate right now on whether or not a woman can be a pastor, whether or not a woman can be an elder. How, how long do you think that debate goes on in church history? it's not existent. It's only in recent times. This is not something that the church debates over throughout 2,000 years of church history. It's a very, very recent debate. The only place you really get it in church history a lot of times are with some of the cults, like a guy named Montanus who claimed that he was the Holy Spirit and he had these female prophets that were with him. Other than that, you don't really have that. So that's a big indicator of something that maybe we're taking more from culture than we are from the Bible, right? So the idea of having a female elder doesn't exist, basically, in church history. Again, with all of these, there are some few outlying exceptions. I'm not saying you can't go find one example. What I'm saying is, on the whole, when it comes to Protestant theology, Roman Catholic theology, and Greek Orthodox theology, you don't have that. That's a modern idea. That lets us know places where we're reading our culture back onto the text. Number four, church history helps us see where we might be defending our traditions instead of the teachings of Scripture. This is really difficult because we equate our traditions with the Bible, right? We all do that. I do that. There are certain things that I like done certain ways at churches, and when I don't get my way, I feel like we have just forsaken the gospel, but we haven't. Those are just preferences. I have preferences too. We all have preferences. We always have to be on guard of our preferences. We have a tendency a lot of times to think all of our traditions are what's biblical, and that's not the case. That's not the case, okay? Number five. Church history brings humility. Church history brings humility. When you realize the men and women that have gone before, the things they've had to deal with, the things they've had to wrestle through, the things that when you sit down to read your Bible, you sit down with a community of millions of believers over 2,000 years. Church history helps us see that. It brings humility. It lets us know I'm just not the sole interpreter by myself of the Bible. We interpret it in community. The Protestant reformers were very clear on this, that even though they believed in sola scriptura, they did not think you could just interpret it without any other Christians. We need each other to challenge each other's presuppositions, to challenge each other where the text might be interpreted correctly and where it's interpreted incorrectly. Number six, church history is a reminder of God's grace. Now, here's why I say that. I love studying church history because it's like super unchristian. That's why I like studying. It's like the history of God's people shooting themselves in the foot. That's what it is. Okay? If you want a really good one volume, church history, there's one called Church History in Plain Language. If you, if you like this kind of stuff, if you're like, man, get out of history, get back to the Bible, I get that. I get that too. Right? It's called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. The reason it's helpful is because it's only one volume instead of having to have this massive multi-volume set, and it's written like a story. So it's not just a bunch of boring dates and people, it's written almost like a novel, And so I highly recommend if you're just gonna read one book on church history that you read, church history in plain language, but it's so helpful because you're gonna see and you're like, people believe that? People did this? You got burned at the stake for this? That's crazy. And it's a reminder of God's grace that though his church has cheated on Christ over and over and over and over again, Christ has preserved her. Christ has preserved her, okay? And then lastly, church history gives us helpful creeds and statements of faith from the past. It gives us helpful creeds and statements of faith from the past. There was a professor at uh, Dallas Seminary named Jeff Bingham. I was actually mentioning this to, uh, to Jerry and Jeff the other day. And he, one of the classes, he got up and he said in front of the class, I don't care if you're reading the Bible. I care if you're reading the Bible in light of the creeds. And his whole point was to say, and that, that's, great. that's a strong statement, but his whole point was to say you can't just read the Bible and act like the Trinity doesn't exist. You can't read the Bible and act like there are no Christians that go before you. His whole point was to say, we don't have creeds like on the same level as Scripture, but what the creeds do is they help us correctly interpret Scripture. Why can't I just say, I believe the Bible? Well, because a Mormon will say they believe the Bible, and a Catholic will say they believe the Bible, and a Jehovah's Witness will say they believe the Bible. Even a Muslim will say they believe the Bible. I don't care whether or not someone just says they believe the Bible. I want to know what is it about the Bible that you believe? Which Jesus are you worshiping? That's what I want to know. So it helps us better interpret the Bible, okay? Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about philosophy and our culture, and then I'm gonna have Jeff come up for your difficult questions, and I'll just leave. That way I don't have to deal with those, okay? Let's talk a little bit about the role of reason in interpreting the Bible. So we talked about, we have presuppositions. What's a presupposition? Someone give me a summary. Yes, it's something you supposed beforehand. All right, we talked about the importance of trusting all of the Bible. We talked about how to question our presuppositions. Now I just talked about the importance of church history in studying the Bible. Someone just give me one of the reasons it's important to study church history in interpreting the Bible just any of them. I named like seven. So if you can't name any, that means I'm a terrible teacher and I'm very sorry. Your view might be wrong if yeah. Your view may, again, doesn't mean it's necessarily wrong. Church history is not the Bible. There are places where church history is wrong for the majority, but on the whole, most of what church history believe would be correct. Yeah. Okay. What else? Somebody else have another one? Someone over here. I heard a, I heard a sound. What is it? Brings humility, all right? There's a few reasons. There's several reasons to study church history. Now let's talk about reason, philosophy, and what you need to know about our culture to best interpret the Bible, okay? Number one, the Bible would encourage us to think critically when we read the Bible, okay? Use your mind. That's okay. It's okay. To be academic or to be intellectual does not mean you love God less. To exalt the head is not to devalue the heart. Those go together, The Bible itself will encourage you to be discerning. Let me give you some passages. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. I even want you testing what I'm saying. I want you to go home, and Zach said test everything, including the things Zach said, including testing everything. That's what I want you to do, all right? Test everything. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me say it this way. We all want to change our hearts. We all want to change our hearts. We want to love God more. We want to be obedient. We want to walk more in step with the Spirit. But look at me, this is important. You don't change your heart by just wanting to change your heart. You change your heart by, quote, renewing your mind. It starts here. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the way it flows. Head, heart, hands, habitat. okay. You learn correct truth about God from his word. You implant that into your heart where you love it, you believe it, it causes rejoicing and worship. That affects your actions, which then affects the community around you. Does that make sense? What we do is we do all three of those except the first one. We say, okay, I want to change culture. How am I going to change culture? I'll launch a Facebook war. No, that's not how you do it. I'll get involved in political activism. That's not how you do it. Or I want to change my actions. I keep walking in the sin, so you know what I'll do? I'll just try to do this, so I change my action. I want to change my heart. I don't like that there's sin in my heart. I don't like the fact that I don't love God like I should. I want to change my heart. All of that starts with this. If you have a wrong view of God, a wrong view of his word, you can't change those other things. Head, heart, hands, habitat. That's the way it has to flow. That's the way it has to flow. We renew our mind if we want to love God more. Now, that doesn't just mean if you learn a bunch of facts, you'll love God more. They go together. But it does mean that it's hard to love God more without those correct facts, okay? Second Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, okay? Reason and logic and philosophy are not bad things. We just have to use them in light of the Bible. We just have to use them in light of the Bible, okay? Everyone in here is a theologian. Do you guys agree with that? So sometimes I'll say, well, a theologian, and someone will say, I'm not a theologian. Everyone's a theologian. A theologian is someone who has thoughts about God. What happens when you die? What's right and wrong? These kind of things. Everyone's a theologian. Let me say something else that's also true. Everybody in here is a philosopher. The question is not whether or not you're a philosopher. It's are you a good or a bad philosopher? Just like the question is not, are you a theologian? It's are you a good or a bad theologian? Everyone has thoughts about reality, that's philosophy. Everyone has thoughts about knowledge, that's philosophy. Everyone has thoughts about politics, that's philosophy. Everyone has thoughts about ethics, what makes something right or wrong, that's philosophy. So philosophy is in reason and logic, help us be consistent with what we think the Bible means. Okay, Zach, why can't I just read the Bible? You can read the Bible, but when you read the Bible, you bring presuppositions and philosophy helps us question those presuppositions. Okay, okay. I'll give you an example. I I give this when when I'm trying to teach people about ethics. I'll give them this example. Who in here thinks that you things are right or wrong just because they're in the Bible? And that's true. That's my view, by the way. Things are right or wrong because they're in the Bible. So we raise our hand. We all agree with that. I then say, okay, what do we do with things that aren't mentioned in the Bible directly? So for example, we all agree that life is important and should be protected, even in the womb. But then when you say something about, what about in vitro fertilization? Now, you have to say, well, man, the Bible doesn't have in vitro fertilization. So, how do I take the truths that are in the Bible and apply them to today? Is that right or wrong? And you have to wrestle through that. Now, I'm not going to give you my answer for in vitro fertilization or something today. I want you to realize, though, that what we're doing. What's a good way to say this? Okay, I've said everything I've just said just to say this. So, everybody pay attention to this, and you can forget everything else. Ready? Our job as theologians is to do this: it's to say, what does the Bible say in its original context? Now, how does that apply today in a different context? That's that's our sole job. What does it say originally 2,000 years ago to a Jewish audience or whatever? Now, how do we apply the same thing today? Okay? So we've got to figure that out. So you're not going to have a text about in vitro fertilization, whether it's right or wrong. You're going to have to say, okay, what does the Bible say about when life starts? And you've got to learn all of that. And then you've got to go over to in vitro fertilization. You've got to learn the science. You've got to figure out, okay, what are they saying here? What are the chances of life? When, does, uh, when is, you know, this thing uh, truly life, etc.? And you have to wrestle through those things, okay? Or you'll say, okay, well, the Bible tells me not to lie. I agree with that. I totally agree. We shouldn't lie. What happens when you're hiding Jews in your basement and the Nazis knock on the door and ask, do you have Jews here? Does that situation change things or not? Now we're in the realm of philosophy. We've now stepped away. We know the Bible says not to lie, but we see the Hebrew midwives lie to protect the babies, and we see Rahab lie to protect the spies. So what do we do now? That's the job of the theologian. Again, I'm not answering any of these questions. I just want you to know they're questions, and they're difficult. I sat down with a guy from my former church who uh, nar- was a narcotics detective, and he's like, hey, the Bible says not to lie. That's all I do all day. Are you a cop? No, I'm not a cop. Give me some weed or whatever, right? That's what he does. And so we had to figure out the ethics of what about lying in different situations, such as in war or law enforcement, when is lying lying? If I do a pump fake in basketball, have I lied? <laughs> I've tricked you. I, you thought I was gonna take a shot when I was really just not taking a shot. Is a magician sinning when he lies to you and he's like, here, I have the ball in my hand and he's actually hitting it? No one would say he's sinning. Does the context change in war? When we put up inflatable tanks at different places over in Europe to try to trick Hitler of where we're gonna land, have we sinned? These are things that you have to now use logic and reason and philosophy to try to figure out. In light of biblical principles. In light of biblical principles. Okay? Lastly, let's talk about our culture. Our culture. Both Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin say this, and I think it's really, really important that if you want to be a good theologian and you want to correctly interpret the Bible, you need to know about God and you need to know about yourself. You have to know both. You have to know both. There are other churches that are more uh, liberal theologically, I don't mean politically or whatever, more liberal theologically, and they sometimes have a really good, they're really good at knowing themselves. They're really good at knowing the human condition. They're really good at analyzing their heart and being introspective. There are other churches that are really good about knowing God and really good about knowing his word. You can't just be good at at one or the other. You have to be good at both. If you just really, really know the Bible and really, really know the scriptures, but you don't see all the places that your heart is sinful, you don't see all the places you're broken, you don't see why you think that way, Listen, sins are not just actions you commit externally, physically. I've probably committed 100 sins this morning. Every stray thought, every thought that doesn't love God, every thought that's selfish, every thought that's bitter, every thought that's self-serving, these kind of things, we sin all the time. Now, our identity is not as a sinner. Our identity is as a saint, an adopted son or daughter of God. Yes and amen. He doesn't see that sin when he looks at us. He sees Christ. But practically down here, we still sin all the time. We don't reach perfection this side of eternity. And so I I need to know both. I need to know God and who he is through his word, but I also need to know something about myself. So we have to be good students of culture to understand and study the Bible as well, okay? You can't interpret the Bible apart from community. We talked about that a little bit. You have to understand culture to reach the lost. This is big. If you have a big heart for evangelism, the higher your heart is for evangelism and seeing lost people saved, the better student of culture you should be. The better student of culture you should be. Or else you're gonna be talking past each other. This was the era, of, uh, the era of fundamentalism, all right? Early 1900s in the U.S., you had this big movement of, ev- uh, well, they weren't called evangelicals yet, what's called fundamentalism. And it was kind of this rejection of culture. Let's circle the wagons and let's protect ourselves from the outside bad culture because they're teaching things that are wrong. And what happened is you started getting one camp that couldn't talk to the other camp. And so the only people that were getting saved were the, the children of believers. Yes, and amen to that. But we failed to be able to engage people in the intellectual marketplace. So you have to be a good student of culture to be able to reach lost people. You have to know where they're coming from. All right. 80 years ago, you could run up to someone on the street and say, you need to repent and believe in God, and they knew which God you were talking about and exactly what repentance was. That's not the case anymore. If I run up to my Hindu neighbor and share Jesus with them, they'll say, great, I just accepted Jesus. He's one of my millions of gods now. I had a guy do that. I shared shared the faith with a guy who was Baha'i, which is kind of this weird uh, Persian cult. And uh, I was like, man, you need to repent and you need to receive and trust Christ. And he's like, done. I I believe in Christ. I believe in Muhammad. I believe in Baha'u'llah. I believe in all these. I'm in. Yeah, me and Jesus. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You need to accept Jesus and you need to reject all those others. You need to reject all those others. So we couldn't even have the conversation because he has certain cultural assumptions, okay? We have to be good students of culture or else we're going to talk past people. People today don't know what you mean when you say sin. They should, but they don't. We live in a less biblically literate culture than we used to. They don't know what it means when you say Christ. To them, that's some moral philosopher, just like Buddha or something. They don't know what these things mean, okay? So what happens is if we don't study culture, we'll talk past them, and people will not receive the gospel, okay? The Bible is written in an ancient culture, and our job is to find the original meaning of the text in that culture and then find an appropriate way to apply it to our culture, When the Bible says to, and it says it like, I think something like four times, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Who did that this morning? As you came in here, you're like, hey, Zach, and I'm like, right? We're commanded to. How do we take a passage 2,000 years ago in a culture where they kiss people normally and apply it to a culture today? What 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 would it mean to take a text that literally says, greet one another with a holy kiss? How would we apply that today? What's the point of that text? Someone tell me. Or do you not know? Have you been kissing a lot of people? Okay? A lot of single guys wish that they could just use that text. All right. Anybody? What's the point of that text today? We're commanded to do it in Scripture. Yeah, greet one another warmly. We might do so with a hug or a handshake. The whole point is greet each other like a family, like brothers and sisters in Christ. So in our culture, that'll look like a handshake and a smile and these kind of things. In their culture, it's a kiss. But what we've had to do there is we've had to play the role of the theologian. We've had to say, what does this mean in its original culture? It means they're kissing each other. Think kind of European French style or whatever on the cheeks or whatever. And then how do we apply that today? Well, we don't kiss like that in our culture. That's super creepy. And so instead... We need to still follow the biblical command, which is, in a sense, to greet one another warmly. We've got to figure out how that plays into our culture today. Okay? And then, lastly, and then, Jeff, if you want to go ahead and come up, you can. Knowing about culture can prevent you from buying into a false, the false narratives of our day. Let me tell you one of the places I think we've dropped the ball as evangelicals on the homosexuality front. Okay? If I ask you this question Have you stopped beating your wife? What's the problem with that question? It presupposes something, right? If I say, have you stopped beating your wife? And you say, yes, it means you beat her formerly. And if you say no, it means you beat her currently. That's what that means, right? The problem is that the question is loaded. It assumes certain things. You have to realize culture is asking questions that assume certain things all the time. So this was a big question, whereas I feel like we've dropped the ball. The the question was, when it came to homosexuality, is someone born this way or is it a lifestyle choice? That That was the way the question was posed. Now, if we answer either of those questions, we have bought into a system, and we have bought into a presupposition of the culture, which is, if you're born that way, therefore it's not sinful. That's the assumption. That's what's called the enthymeme, logically, of that sentence, is to say, if it's a lifestyle choice, it's sinful, and you should say no, but if you're born that way, then you have to do it, and it's okay. That was the assumption of that thing. We should have said, hold on, before I answer that question, I want you to realize whether you're born that way or not is irrelevant to whether or not something is sin. That's what we should have said. So by getting into the debate, you had all these Christians arguing, no, it's a lifestyle choice, and all these other people saying, no, you're born that way, and they're talking past each other, whereas the Christians should have said, wait a second, your question assumes that if something is quote-unquote natural, therefore it's okay. Nothing is natural post-Genesis 3. We don't live in a normal natural world. We live in a broken natural world. But instead of questioning that, we just have that debate, we lose the debate, and that's it. So this is essential for understanding how to reach the lost, how to hold up the light of God's word, how to tell people about Christ. We have to question these assumptions.